topic of worship. One of the things that's so central to the vineyard is, in fact, a community or being and becoming a community of worship. Uh, there's this rich, long history within the vineyard of being a worshiping people. And so for the next several weeks throughout the month of July, uh, we're going to explore worship. And today, we're going to launch that. And uh, let me just give you a little bit of uh, insight into what we're going to do every week during this series. For me, one of the challenges that I see as we express ourselves in worship is simply... Um, a compartmentalization of our lives. And so what we do on Sunday morning from, say, I don't know, we start at 10 o'clock, so wherever you start, uh, we start at 10 o'clock, and so uh, people often, I think, compartmentalize their life, and they say, well, worship is what happens in the first 20 to 25 minutes, and I'll just tell you, that's singing. Okay, I, I, I don't want to hurt your feelings. But that's singing, and yes, singing is worship. And then we take this crazy coffee break. I think you guys are getting the hang of it. And then we regularly reflect on Scripture, and that's worship. Yeah. See, everything that we do as God's people gathered and scattered is all about worship. And so I want to root us and ground us in the worship that is ascendant, high, lofty, around the throne of God, but doesn't stay there. It's awesome. It's what happens around the throne of God. But it, but it was never intended to just stay there. It was intended to be ascendant and incarnational. It's, it's, it's intended to be bigger than us, and it's intended to be all-inclusive of us, not just as we're gathered from 10 o'clock to 11.15 on Sunday morning. But the whole of our lives should be given holy over to worship. So I had this idea, and the idea is simply this. One of the best ways I know to ground ourselves in worship that is bigger than us, but also that challenges us to an incarnational living out of worship is simply this. I, I, find, it, I find it in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when they ask, would you, Jesus, teach us how to pray? And so we pray this prayer regularly at communion when we gather before the Lord's table. And so for the next five weeks to launch every sermon or every talk about worship, we're going to root ourselves and we're going to ground ourselves in the Scripture that surrounds Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. So I want you to join with me in praying this prayer. 
I'm going to get over here so I can turn. And This is the, uh, the text that we read together on Communion Sunday as we come to the Lord's table. And uh, so for some of you, this is an alteration that's confusing because it's not the way you learned it or the way you memorized it. It's hard for me because this is not how I memorized it. So indulge me and us as we uh, read together Jesus teaching us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. This prayer calls us to something bigger than ourselves, and it calls us into being something larger than ourselves. So today, as we talk about worship being rooted and grounded, we're going to talk about what worship is. And I just have really four ideas about what worship is. And really, I have one idea that fleshes itself out in three follow-up thoughts. And so simply, uh, this, is, uh, this is where I believe that we begin when we talk about worship. So what is worship? Uh, if you want to grab your listening sheet, it's in your program. Uh, you might want to just fill in the blanks here. And this is, this is how I understand it. Worship is an awakening to God's love and our response to it. Worship is an awakening to God's love and our response to it. John, in one of his short letters in 1 John, writes this in chapter 4. verses 10 and 19. And he says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Skip all the way down to verse 19, and the opening phrase there says, We love because He first loved us. The opening slide with the upward turned palm in our presentation this morning with water pouring down into that palm is very depictive to me of our position before God as we worship. And that's simply we are always receptors before we're givers. We're always those who receive first. And John very clearly says to us, that the first gift is God's gift to us of his love. And the clearest gift is God's gift to us of his love made known to us in his one and only Son. God didn't love us simply from a distance, but he came up close and personal through the incarnation of his Son Jesus to declare who he is and what he is about. And if there is one word that characterizes the life and the ministry of Jesus, it's simply this. He loved much. 
His love was, as Kurt did such a wonderful job bringing us to the table, was inviting and self-sacrificing and generous. And so we are compelled by the image of Jesus that we are loved by the Father, that we are loved by the Son, that we are loved by the Holy Spirit. And as our hearts are awakened to that love, the question is simply this, how will we respond? How will we respond? You see, as God is at the center of our worship, we cannot help but be those who experience His love in a real and experiential way. So let me just suggest to you, there, there's a little pamphlet I have in my hand. There's plenty of these pamphlets over on the table, uh, by the way, on our resource table. And all the, all the gifts that are on our resource table are free, and they're available for your taking. This is a little pamphlet I would encourage you to grab, and it's titled, How to Experience God, Encountering God in Worship. And so if you'd like to just take this, it's a, a seven devotionals for individuals or groups. Just grab one of those, maybe one for each family, and grab them until they're gone. And if we run out, we can always get some more. But uh, this is just an opportunity for you to walk with us, although I'm not necessarily using this book as a guideline for our series. This is an opportunity for you to do some study at home, to explore your own experiential uh, connection with God. But here, here's what happens. As God-centered worship, our, our hearts are awakened to his love. And Robert Hartman, uh, Robert's a, a, a vineyard worship leader who's a vintage vineyard vintage vineyard, like, sort of like me. I, I, I'm vintage vineyard. I'm a little older than some of you. But, but Robert, when he talks about God-centered worship and the explosion of experiential love, he simply says this, as we worship, our hearts open toward God, and they are filled with a tangible presence with a tangible presence of God. Steve Shogren, who is absolutely vintage vineyard, says this about worship. He says, when we gather, I want us to experience the vibration of God's presence among us in our sternum. Now, that's pretty bad. That's... Sometimes that's just because the music is really loud. <laughs> or the subwoofer is really thumping. But there's a real powerful presence that as we give ourselves to worship, there is a tangible experience of God's presence among it. Just a quick poll. In your lifetime, you can raise your hand if you want to. You don't have to raise your hand. But in your lifetime, can you ever remember an experience in worshiping God where there was a tangible presence. It was like, I felt the presence of God. You can raise your hand. I, I felt the presence of God. I, see, this is a normal experience. When we worship, as we worship, worship is an awakening of God's love and our response to it. Interestingly, when we respond to it, what we simply mean about that is we, we respond in such a way that we go beyond simply thinking about God. We, 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 
we go beyond simply thinking about God. You see, simply thinking about God is absent from Old Testament and New Testament literature. They have absolutely no way of simply thinking about God without it having effect in their life. See, uh, Jamie Smith, uh, a philosopher, a uh, uh, religious philosopher that I love, he simply says this. He says, what modernity has done to us is it's deceived us into believing that we're thinking thingisms. That we're thinking thingisms. That all that really matters is what goes on between our ears and the gray matter. See, Old Testament and New Testament thought has nothing to do with that being thinking thingisms. It's not about what we think. It's about who we are and how we express that. And experiencing the love of God allows for an outpouring of expression. So when we think about worship, we can often think of it as, a, as an intellectual experience. Theater of the mind. When in fact, all the words that are descriptive of worship that are biblical have something to do with a bodily response to the presence of God among us. One of the primary Old Testament images for worship is a word that means we simply bow down before Him in His presence kneeling before him, lying down before him. You see, it's, it's an attitude that affects not just our minds, but our whole beings. And so therefore, at the vineyard, it's not uncommon for us to experience the presence of God among us. And we lift our hands and we clap and we kneel and we weep. And sometimes even we lie down before him in the presence of his holiness simply because we are aware and recognizing the powerful presence of God's love being made known among us. We are not just thinking about God, but we're open-heartedly communicating and giving ourselves to God as we worship. Worship is an awakening to God's love and our response to it. When we worship, there should be an awakening of God within us and His love as Creator, the one who made and holds all things together by the power of His Word. I love Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the earth. And it says, and the Spirit was hovering over the water. In the foundational formation of the earth and all that is, you can expand that to say the earth and the cosmos, is a God-breathed hovering of the Spirit that is overflowing with love and out of that hovering, overflowing love, Paul says to us, you are capable to take a look of everything that's around you in Romans chapter 1 and simply by looking at all that has been made, you are all filled because of the one who is the maker of all things. So when we think about worship and the presence of God's love, we take a look around us as God is creator. 
The second thing that the Old Testament talks a lot about and Jesus personifies is simply this. When we think about the, the awakening power of God's love, we think about him being a benevolent king. A benevolent king engaged in our lives for our good and through us for the good of others. God in extending his rule through his people, those who love him and those who are obedient to his calling and his word. So love awakens as we see God as creator. Love awakens as we see God as king. Love awakens as we see God as Savior. And we see this most clearly in the sacrificial death of Jesus, and our hearts are warmed by his sacrificial love that is all-inclusive. No one cast off, but everyone welcome to receive the love of Jesus made known to us. And I will just tell you this. My experience in engaging with Jesus as my Savior is the one place where I regularly say, Oh, God, you are so awesome. You are so incredibly wonderful. You're so incredibly powerful. And I am filled with grace. I am filled with your mercy and I experience your love because I am forgiven. Jesus talks about that experience when he says, if you've been forgiven much, you love much. You see, no matter how we calculate our lives, all of us has been forgiven much. All of us have been forgiven much. So this experience of an awakening to God's love and our response to it is, is what worship is all about. It's not just a thought thing. It's a, it's a bodily response. It's giving ourselves holy. It's remembering that God is creator. It's remembering that God is king. It's remembering that God is savior. It's remembering that God is present to us in, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we look at the incredible interaction there that the scripture teaches us about, there's an explosion of love that draws us to God, that draws us to the Son, that draws us to the Spirit, and calls for us to respond to the overflowing outpouring of their love. And so the, the question then begs, how is it that we respond to the love of God? How is it that we respond to the love of God? The next three things are ways, not, not in total, there are lots of ways to respond to God. I've already mentioned some of them. But here are some ways to respond to the overflowing, outpouring love of Jesus. And here's, here's the first thing. As, as God awakens love in our heart, our response to, us, to, to that is simply this. Worship and responsive worship is an act of submission. It's an act of submission. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. You read the whole of Psalm 51, 
the question is being asked is, what can we do to atone for ourselves? Can we give you some sacrifice? Can we give you uh, something that's uh, worthy uh, of, of your attention? And, and, and simply, the answer is simply this. No, there's nothing you can give. The best thing you can give is simply your submission, your individual submission, your corporate submission to, to obedience. So uh, a sacrifice is a broken spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? A broken spirit expresses itself in these words. I need your help now. I need your help now. And it doesn't really matter when we engage that. It could be when it seems as though everything is going well. It also could be when our world seems to be falling apart. You see, because a broken and a contrite spirit is a spirit that recognizes that we are not self-made. That's a big rub culturally for us. We, we love the notion that we're self-made. And the truth is, we're not. Not a single one of us. Even those who identify as self-made men and or women, and even those who are applauded as self-made men or women, they are not. They're not. Somewhere along the line, someone has come alongside and aided and assisted those of us who have a contrite heart, broken spirit, just simply recognize that we are not self-made. I need your help. And this actually is one of the greatest challenges to worship. Bob Coughlin, in his book, Worship Matters, says this. He says, the greatest challenge to worship is the attitude of your heart. The greatest challenge to worship is the attitude of your heart. So I was thinking about that this week. My mind was suddenly transported back to my early years of being raised in the church. So some of you don't know, I was raised in the church. I'm the son of a preacher man, and I'm the grandson of a preacher man. And as I was reflecting back on my own experiences in growing up in the church, one song came powerfully back to me that was sung so regularly, it just came fill, filling my mind. And it expresses exactly, I need you now. And it goes like this, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. That is truth. 
Submission is a recognition that I am in deep need. Not when things get so large that I can't control them, but every moment of every hour, I am in need. And that is a good thing. An awakening of love and our response to it allows us to quickly say, I need you. And in saying, I need you, we are submitting to God's purposes and plan and will for our lives even when we don't understand it and even when he seems distant and far away. That's what an awakening of love does in and through us. An awakening of God's love and our response to it is that worship is forming and reforming our lives and community. Worship is forming and reforming our lives and community. Look at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, and uh, Paul's writing here, and he says simply, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Uh, I don't know about you, but my natural inclination is not that. So I say I need to be formed. I need to be formed. One of the ways we talk about being formed is simply the practice of spiritual disciplines. So let's just talk about a couple of those. Practice of spiritual disciplines that you might be familiar with is uh, reading Scripture regularly. You know, some of you have a practice of, uh, you've been doing it for a long, long time, and every year you read all the way through the Bible, and you've done it for year after year after year after year. Awesome. That's a way to do it. Some of you have a favorite devotional book written by one of your favorite authors, and, and maybe it's 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. You can even buy them all for, for a whole year. And every day you open to the page that is given, and you read the material that is there, and uh, you're engaging Scripture. It, the, one's not better than the other, but one of the regular practices of God's people in terms of being formed, forming our lives, is being immersed regularly in the Scripture. So the spiritual discipline of reading Scripture is a forming of our lives around the plan and purposes of God for our lives. Another thing that we do is we, we pray. We pray. And sometimes we pray when we're in great need, and sometimes we pray just because we're quickened to the awareness of God's presence around us. I, I love being in beautiful places being in beautiful places always create a greater sense of prayer in me. I'm just like, wow. Like Colorado Springs. I love Colorado Springs. Garden of the Gods. I love Garden of the Gods. Just walk around and just the awe of God's presence invites and calls out of me prayer. Some other spiritual disciplines, uh, the practice of fasting, where you withhold a meal from 
maybe just one meal out of the day, and sometimes it's one meal out of the day for each week, and sometimes it's longer periods, and sometimes you've been called to fast for more than just one meal for the day. But when you fast, it's simply about giving up a meal for the purpose of creating space in your life to experience God. Nothing really holy about it. It's what you do while you're doing it that's holy. Creating space to encounter God. Some, some of you are uh, uh, familiar with uh, some other spiritual practices uh, where you read Scripture and you contemplate Scripture and you think about Scripture. And so as, as you read through it, you pause, you think, you pray. You read through it again, you pause, you think, you pray. You read through it a third time, you pause, you think, you pray. But see, these, so, so forming a, another practice of spiritual response is, I see a number of you who regularly gather with God's people, with God's people for worship. That's a spiritual discipline. Did you know that? It's a spiritual discipline. So before you get too uptight about what I'm getting ready to say, let me just say very clearly, being here more regularly doesn't mean you're holier than anyone else. So here's how I say it at the vineyard. Here's how I say it. There are Sundays that you should not be here because there are more important things to be doing than being here. And if I tell you that, I also must tell you this. There are some Sundays that you better drag yourself here even if you think it's going to kill you. The truth is, I don't know what's the difference in those two, but you do. You do. There are Sundays you shouldn't be here, and there are Sundays you should drag yourself here even if you think it's going to kill you. See, this, this whole thing about being formed and then reformed, and, and, and simply what I mean by reformed is sometimes... Sometimes we get caught up into a habit that stops informing us. And it's just rote habit that has no longer any impact in our life. And if you've ever been a follower of Jesus for a very long, you know, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of period of time at all, you understand that certain things that, that invigorated your life went stale and dry. But as you continue to pursue God, there was this opening to new things. And I don't know what's gone stale or dry in your life, but what happens when that happens is God is giving you the opportunity to be reformed, to be reshaped by His love and your response to His incredibly powerful love. Rich Nathan says, As we surrender control of our lives to Jesus, we become what God always intended our lives to be. When we surrender our control, uh, the control of our lives to Jesus, we become what God always intended our lives to be. When I found that quote this week, I thought of Luke chapter 10, verse 27, and it simply says this. You're familiar with this. Jesus is trying to get tripped up by one of the, the, uh, the lawyers of his day who's asking, who, who's your neighbor and how important is it? And Jesus simply replies. He says, love the Lord. He says, what's the most important commands? He says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
forming and reforming our lives always centered around passionate expression and experience of love for God that includes a growing, continuing, ongoing love for neighbor. You've heard people say that followers of Jesus are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. I would say impossible if you're truly heavenly-minded. Impossible if you're truly heavenly-minded, which goes back to why I root us and ground us in Jesus teaching us to pray because he says, Father in heaven, holy is your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And you can pause and you'll do no injustice to the scripture if you insert these words. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done right here, right now through me. True worship that launches us to the throne room scatters us to the ends of the earth to be those who are formed and reforming, experience the transforming love of Jesus, which then revitalizes our love for neighbor. It revitalizes our love for neighbor. You, if properly oriented, you cannot be too heavenly minded to be of no earthly value. It's impossible. And then finally, and I'm, I'm done with this, as we navigate our way to experiencing the awakening of God's love and our response to it, it's not just about submission. It's not just about forming and reforming our lives. It's about worship becoming. Worship is, worship is a way of life. Worship is a way of life. It's a way of living. I just come back to uh, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. Just as you received Christ, continue to live your lives in him rooted and grounded, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. A prescription for a life well lived. Continue sending deep roots into the love of Jesus. Continue experiencing growth in the love of Jesus, which then turns all of our experience being loved and loving well, being loved and loving well, being loved and loving well. And that, my friends, is what worship is really all about. Worship is the throne room experience that sends us to the ends of the earth proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It becomes a way of life. It becomes a way of life. Some of you have heard this, and I close with this. When I was a student at uh, what is now Southwestern Assemblies of God University, my senior year, as I was exploring what God's call on my life was, and if you've heard my story about calling, I, I made a series of what I consider holy compromises. You know, I, so I never had it clearly in my mind that I wanted to be a pastor. As a matter of fact, I thought, no, I don't ever want to be a pastor. That was the thought I had growing up. But I had a series of what I'd call holy compromises. And this is key to my understanding of the life that I live now. And it occurred then in one very clear moment of encounter with God's love. So the school I attended is a very small college, private university. 
Uh, its peak attendance uh, at, uh, at that time was about 800 students. I had almost that many students in my graduating class as a high school senior. <laughs> Not a very big place. One of the requirements of attendance there was that you had to attend chapel every day, Monday through Friday. You got a break on Saturday because they didn't host chapel, and then you were expected to go to church on Sunday, and you had to tell them where you were going to go, and then you had to actually fill out these reports of telling them you, that you did attend. It, yeah, I know. Some of you are thinking, really? <laughs> yeah, really. And that's what I thought sometimes when I went to chapel. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, really. On this occasion, candidly, I don't remember the name of the speaker. have no clue who he was. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you who he was if I had to. But I do remember this. He preached what was seemingly a very normal sermon to me. Nothing I hadn't heard before. And he simply said, at the close of his sermon, he said this. He said, I know that you're college students, and many of you are wrestling with the call of God in your life. And so because you're students, here's what I'm pretty sure you have. Lots of you have a piece of, pencil, uh, have, have a piece of paper and a pencil uh, in your bag with you, and you've got it. So here's what I want you to do. If you have a pencil and paper, I want you to reach down and grab that pencil and paper. And here's what I want you to do. I simply want you to take the next 90 seconds, and I want you to write everything that you can think of that you're willing to do for God. Man, I, I started writing, grabbed my paper, and I, re I wrote fast and furiously of all the things that I could imagine doing for God. I wasn't even close to the end of my list when he said, Now, I've interrupted you a little bit soon, but now I have a really serious question. So I want you to think with me for just a second. And I don't want to make you think poorly of anything you've written, but here's really the biggest question that I can ask you today is simply this. If you're really serious, now would you just turn that sheet over? Would you just turn that sheet over and forget about everything you've said you're willing to do for God? And if you're really serious today, would you just be willing to sign your name at the bottom of a blank sheet and say, God, wherever you lead me, I'll go. And I immediately thought, you sorry, no good for nothing, cheating preacher. You tricked me. But then I knew he was right. I knew he was right. And worship as a way of life doesn't omit the things you're willing to do for God. But I will tell you that worship as a way of life, if you're really committed to it, will demand obedience in places you could never imagine. And uh, one of the things I am is I'm a little bit thick at times and I'm a little bit dense a little bit hard-headed about my way. But something happened inside of me that day that I pray happens for all of us. And that is simply this. Worship as a way of life becomes an expression of simple obedience to God wherever He calls us 
and whatever he asks of us for one reason and one reason only his great love compels us and because his great love compels us it calls us to be responsive to that great love and I want to suggest the response to that great love is giving him everything you've got all that you have and all that you are that is worship as a way of life.